Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Allingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. for tuning in today uh we have a really cool episode today but first let me say hi to alex alex i haven't seen you in a long time how you been i know it's been like a week it's, <laughs> it's, been, it's been great i know been, we we see each other almost every week but but it's been a, a little bit too long um, i spent the last week in northern michigan with my family just hiking around the dunes and things oh beautiful i'm an ignorant person because i didn't realize how much sand was in michigan it's beautiful <laughs> that's funny um okay alex like really quick question favorite superpower Oh, all right. So I meant this as a, as a dinner party question for you, which was what, what superpower would you prefer between invisibility or flight? If you have to pick Uh, flight hands down. Okay. John, do you have a preference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Take flight. Okay. I'm also flight. I think it's, I don't remember where I saw this first. I think it was like Malcolm Gladwell, which was like, basically like, are you an introvert or extrovert? What is that? What is that? So which, which is, are we? I, th- I think we're all ext- extroverts because, because of our, of our thing. Flight. That's interesting. Oh. It's just meant to be like a simple. Uh, I just, I just like really stuff. don't like flying, like in planes. I'm afraid, I'm afraid of flying in planes. And so if, if I can survive, then that would make things a lot better. But if I become invisible, it doesn't help me. What if it's more turbulent personally? Like if you're flying on your own and you're shaking. But I can control it, right? I think I it's about, okay. my fear is about control, not about statistical <laughs> probability of dying. Right? So, um, okay. Well, today we are talking about how faculty can get their graduate students ready for the market and also some tangential questions on job market related questions. And our guest, very excited for this, is John Colley. He's a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell in the Department of Economics. Uh, he's also the co-director in the Cornell's Institute of Health Economics, Health Behaviors, and Disparities. His research focuses on the economics and risky health behaviors, in particular to those that are related to obesity. Personal note is that my the first paper, not the first paper that I ever published, but the first paper that I ever worked on was basically a follow-up to John Scully's paper on day chart in 2004 of obesity. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, so so I I, I know him from far away. <laughs> um, but it's great to, to talk to him. John, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks very much for having me, guys. This is really nice. And awesome. I, I really like your podcast. It's a really nice service to awesome. the field. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, so we like to ask our guests to tell us a fun fact about yourself. What's your fun fact? Yeah, so I guess my fun fact is um, like a really formative experience for me was um, being an exchange student to India when I was 16 to 17 years old. So I uh, moved to Mumbai and uh, lived with three different families and just had a wonderful time. It was a real sort of growth experience and learning about a new culture, seeing a wonderful part of the world. And it, uh, you know, it turned out to be important in ways I couldn't have foreseen. So, um, mm. you know, one of the families I lived with was a Muslim family. And mm. so after 9-11, when there was a lot of, you know, misconceptions in the U.S. about Muslims, I that was a really important you know background to have is, yeah. is knowing what year was this? So this would have been eighty six to eighty seven. Okay, wow. And um, yeah, so it was wonderful, and uh, you know, just really, you know, appreciating that you know people are the same all over the world. We're all part of the big extended family, yeah. and um, yeah, was so that, had a wonderful time. Was that a choice, Mumbai, India, or was that assigned? So the country I so the way it worked is that you ranked the countries you wanted, 
when when you were applying for the Rotary Exchange program. And so the funny thing is, is like a lot of people were you know, wanting to go to Italy and Australia. And so <laughs> like people, you know, and so they would have this, they had this dinner and they would announce where people were going. And so people would, you know, they would open the envelope and say, you're going to Italy. And people would be like, yes. And so they opened the envelope and said, you're going to India. And I was psyched. That was my number one choice. <laughs> nice. And there was like a hush, like, oh, because like the other ones were all like, you know, wow. beachy places. Yeah. People thought like, oh, how's he going to handle this? But that's what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted to go somewhere. It would take like a year to really understand the culture. Yeah. Um, How did it? Oh, sorry, go on. I would say that sounds surprisingly like the medical rank system where they all mm. open them together and it's sort of like joint happiness or like very sad experience in front of everyone <laughs> if you don't get where you ranked. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the cuisine elements that you brought back. Like, do you now have this tradition that you eat like certain food that you learn how to make there or... So, I mean, I took language classes when I lived there, but I've gotten no, you know, I haven't built on that in any way. I haven't kept yeah. it up. I can still remember profanities that I won't <laughs> hear. Uh, I can do this thing where I can snap my uh, <gasps> fingers like this. Oh my gosh, you guys should see it live. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, that's like an unusual thing, I think. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's like a good way to discipline your kids too, I feel like. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Just like they know it's coming now. Have you gone back? I have not had an opportunity to go back. Mm-hmm. I would love to go back. I mean, here it's completely different. Like when I was there, there were really almost no Western brands at all, like cars or food or anything. And I guess now it's just very, you know, we're all part of the monoculture now. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Awesome. So that sounds like a nice place to sort of transition. Um, so before we get to the topic of the day, which is going to be related to job markets in particular, how you uh, might think of preparing a student for a job market, uh, for the job market, if you are a, uh, a new assistant professor, we'd like uh, to give John an opportunity to share something that he's working on or something he's interested in uh, with our audience. Uh, so John, is there anything you'd love to share? Yeah, thank you. So uh, one thing I'd love to share is that I'm co-organizing a virtual, like an online seminar with uh, Anna Balsa um, of Uruguay and Tina Osgiersdottir of Iceland and Hans van Kipperslaus of the Netherlands. And it's, it, it's called VERB, uh, the Virtual Seminar on the Economics of Risky Health Behaviors. And so like there's that saying, right, the, every crisis is an opportunity. And so mm-hmm. the crisis is, is that we can't have external visitors to our universities anymore awesome. and we can't even get in the same room and have a seminar. But the opportunity is like we can build something bigger than we ever did before, which is create a nice community of people internationally who are all interested in the same topics. And risky health behaviors are really universal, right? Every country in the world is struggling with, uh, you know, smoking, obesity, mm-hmm. uh, self-harm and suicide, drug addiction to a certain extent. Uh, alcohol problems. And so uh, we just had a lot of fun reaching out, put together this advisory board of people from every continent. And we've got speakers on the program, you know, numerous speakers from Latin America, from North America, from Europe. Uh, So really encourage people, I guess the link will be provided with the episode and really encourage you to sign up. Awesome. And then people can register and you'll get uh, the links to the uh, seminars. And so the, the idea too is to, you know, not just invite like the most senior people in the field that who are just super famous and don't need another seminar, but like invite early career people from grad students through assistant professors, postdocs, and mm-hmm. give them an opportunity to get great feedback and, and great exposure. And, and the seminar lineup is great. So it's, it looks like it's full all the way through December already. So you can go on and see the speakers bios and in some cases, even links to the papers, but in every case, it looks like there's a title and this stuff, it looks really interesting. Some of these papers I'm familiar with and they're really good on some I'm not, but I want to be more familiar with. I'm looking at <laughs> Excellent. And yes, yeah, we've got with a range of topics like alcohol abuse, opioid, epi- the opioid epidemic, obesity, smoking, um, all sorts of 
risky health behaviors people are interested in. Is it call for spring already out? Or? So people should definitely contact. So you can contact anybody on the advisory board, any of the okay. four organizers, and we are happy to um, you know, figure out a way to schedule you. Okay, oh, wow. Great. I just looked at the advisory board. This I was about is to extensive. say, this is, a, this is like a journal <laughs> yeah. level advisory board. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of evil. That's great. So aside from a great researcher, I believe John is well known for his work on the job market guy. So if you don't know this, just Google his name and job market guy. And this is a guy that he's written for, I don't know how long, but he also updates it every year with new information. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, part of the things we'll talk about today. But given that context, um, we want to ask questions of the job market, maybe in a different angle that they don't touch on their guide or, or other places. But first, let's, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us your interest in learning about the job market and how that came about? Well, sure. So it was, it was very much a self-interest in the beginning. So I was in grad school and there really wasn't any kind of systematic way of sharing information about the job market with grad students. You would just kind of, you know, muddle through and, and hope that somebody at your university would, you know, take the time to fill you in. There wasn't a lot of preparation before you went on the market. And so I just thought, you know, I'm going to need, need all the help I can get. And so mm -hmm. I started taking like really copious notes. And I would ask the people who are on the market ahead of me, like, what, you know, what was your major takeaway? What did you learn from this? What do I need to know? Awesome. What are important resources? And um, so I compiled all these notes and I, I wanted to do a postdoc. And so I had a feeling I could be oh. back on the market again in two years and need mm. to go through this again. So that was another reason to keep good notes is I'm, I'm going to have to revisit this. And so that's what I did. And so um, just kept building up these notes whenever I would talk to somebody new or come across a new resource. And so I shared it with a couple of people, including uh, John Siegfried, who was the secretary treasurer of the AEA. And so he gave me some really helpful advice and then uh, told me that, you know, if you do these other things, then, you know, we'll post it on the AEA webpage. That's um, awesome. And so that's kind of the beginning of it being the, the guide to the job market on the uh, AEA site. And yeah, just continue to update. And it's amazing how much things have changed. Like, right, you know, right. It's changed really dramatically in 20 years. What? So the first one was 20 years ago to the year 2000? Uh, the first one that was posted might have been 03. 03. That's my and guess. What is like one, one or two of the, dra the most drastic change that you've seen or recall? I mean, you know, so I first applied for jobs in 98, 1998 to start in 99. And you'd mail everything. Like mm. every single application. And so people were spending over a hundred dollars just on postage. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So now of course we have these electronic clearing houses back then Joe only came out once a month and now oh. the jobs are posted continuously. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. In wow. 2015, I was still mailing a few applications though. So that hasn't really? totally gone away. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I mailed anything unless I'm forgetting, <laughs> but that's crazy. No. Um, and, it, you know, it things change. And obviously this year is probably one of the most maybe mm -hmm. different ones for different reasons, I guess. But mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure there'll be other innovations. OK, so so obviously this guide has a lot of really useful information. You should go check it out. Um, and, and every year, I think uh, John uh, makes an update on, on new information. Um, but let's get into uh, uh, other tangential questions related to this. Alex, you want to you want to start us off? Yeah, so so something I, I found your guide really useful and, and also speaking with other people that had done well on the job market or had at least been on the job market really useful as well. Um, but something that sort of struck me when I started as an assistant professor was that I, I didn't really know how to best train my students or prepare my students for the job market. And perhaps that's because uh, this guide and lots of information is really well suited for an economics audience. And I'm at an uh, interdisciplinary school where students get jobs in all sorts of different places. But it, it became sort of immediately clear to me that like 
training to have a good job market paper and go in the market is different than pushing a student in that, mm-hmm. that direction. So I was wondering if there are any tips that you might have or accumulated wisdom um, that might be like sort of obvious things you should be doing as like a new advisor. And I don't necessarily mean like you're going to be someone's primary advisor, but you're mm-hmm. just maybe a committee member or interacting with students when you first arrive. So that's a great question. And um, I guess I want to preface it by just saying, like, I don't think there's a single best way to advise, right? It's just like there's no single best way to have a friendship or a marriage or to parent someone. So I don't think there's a single right approach for everybody. But here are the things like I do think matter in, in like my experience. So one thing is just to be starting at the very beginning is like try and make good decisions about who you agree to advise, right? And so, you know, sometimes it's obvious the person's working in an area very, very much related to yours. But in other cases, right, it might be like a real stretch. And you should really think about whether you're the right person in the department to be doing this as opposed to somebody else. Because you might feel like, well, who am I to say no? But if in the end, you're not the right person to be, you know, helping them make their work better and guiding them towards their goal, then it could really, you know, not help them at all. But assuming that you're, you know, it's a good match, then starting from the beginning, like make sure that they're getting the right coursework. So try and give them good advice like so like what i think matters a lot is uh like as an empirical researcher myself is like matters is econometric methods and so take a lot of classes and not just like theorem proof econometrics but like how to do it econometrics um get practice writing papers and giving seminars like it's never too soon to start getting on your feet and hopefully in class hopefully the classes people take like prepare them to like write papers and get up on their feet and present and respond to questions get used to speaking clearly responding to questions thinking on your feet and then you know encourage students to attend seminars in their areas of interest because they'll really get to see what works and what doesn't in terms of research itself, but also presentations. It's really good to see job candidates coming in to present like all during all of your years of being a grad student, because that really helps you see, okay, this is where I need to be by the time I'm finishing up is I have to like have this level of quality paper, this level of quality of presentation. Um, Something you can really do, I think, as an advisor is help people break into the social side of the profession. Um, Like I think economists often think of themselves as being like very, very rational. But there's also a lot of kind of um, not emotional, but like social side to what we do. Like think of conferences, right? Like people hang out and talk and they learn important things by just hanging out and chatting at conferences. You learn things by going to dinner with a seminar speaker and talking about like what's going on in the profession, you know, what's going on with this paper, with these people. And so bring your students into those things, you know, like encourage your students to go to conferences and then when they're there, like invite them, introduce them to really nice people in the profession who will, you know, be contacts for them. Um, whenever you have a seminar speaker and bring students to those dinners, um, you know, I think, you know, I remember we had one um, grad student who, when he went on the market, said afterwards that, like, in almost every interview he went to, he'd already met somebody in that interview team, either because they visited and he got to meet them or at a conference he ran into them. And that's sort of one goal I have for every student is, like, be so integrated into the profession that people are almost surprised you're not an assistant professor already. That, that's awesome advice. Um, I, have, I have like a really practical sort of follow up to that. So that sounds so that to summarize the advice, it's make good decisions about who you're going to advise, uh, make sure they see the right information, right? So whether that's through courses or presentations, and then make sure that you're enabling them to have the right sort of interactions with other people, maybe in social networks that you have access to, but they might not as easily. Um, so, so how do you enforce this, right? Do you have like a contract? Do you tell this to students? 
so, so a thing that I struggled with was that I, I like had some advice. I had some things I wanted a student to do and then they wouldn't do it. Or maybe they weren't, I didn't push them enough. Like, like, how do you make it happen? Or do you just sort of let students say, Hey, I want you to do these things. And if you don't do them, you're not going to get a good letter. And let's that's a market for itself. <laughs> so that's a great question because I think there are these just differences in personality almost. Um, and so I match best with people who are pretty independent. Um, I don't match well with people who the first time they have a hiccup with a program, like can't continue progressing until they've met with me in person. You know, like I, I feel like I, I really work well with people who are good problem solvers. And like when you give them feedback, we'll go and implement it. Uh, I remember there was a really funny story that this very successful academic now told me. So she was um, not from the U.S. and came and did her PhD in the U.S. And her advisor told her, well, you might want to think about doing this and you might want to really should consider whether to do that. And so she thought about it, went, like, went away, thought about it and decided not to do any of it. And so the next time she met with him, he was in, like really angry. And he <laughs> said, I told you to do A, B and C. And she said, no, you didn't. Like what you said is I should think about doing A, B and C. And I thought about it and didn't do it. And so like, there it's a miscommunication. Um, but sometimes it's an issue of communication. Sometimes it's a matter of like how people best function. Like I'm sure there are some people who really want to meet like three times a week and be told what to do. Uh, and then they can get stuff done. But like, I sort of feel like, uh, like I, I, I like and work better with people who are more independent and um, like sort of eager to be principal investigators of their own very soon. Yeah. I think one reaction that I had when you were saying all of this is I think, right. People will hear this or, you know, some faculty member will hear this and be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, and then part of me is that I think some people know this, but they, some of them lack to practice it on their own students. And so what I mean by this is like year fourth comes in and it's like, oh yeah, you should go to these conferences. Maybe I wonder if there's a system where if you're a person who is in that position with advising someone, have a, a semesterly or yearly review where you're like, what courses are you taking? What conferences are you going? What papers are you writing? Because otherwise, like you, you, you forget that this person maybe needs structure, right? And, and in some cases, the students may be super independent, like, awesome and in other cases it's 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 like sometimes needs not necessarily hand-holding is our word but like more structure put in place is that is that a is that a fair thing to maybe suggest or or do you think that's like not necessarily that no i think that's very fair so actually one thing that we do like in our field here in our our phd program is we have an annual meeting of all the faculty and we put slides up for each student with their photo and what year they're in and then what progress have they made in the past year Mm. and um, and That's so awesome. that also, and then at that meeting, the advisors have to chime in about how things are going and other faculty might have questions, uh, mm. or say like, oh, you know, this person's really struggling in my class or didn't do their job as a TA. And then mm. the advisor does feel accountable for just knowing what's going on with these students. And this, and the advisors have to sort of provide missing information for the slides in advance. And so that really does, I think, help force an mm. annual reckoning of right where are you with respect to where you need to be? I, I like that quite a bit. Like, so I'm at a pretty big institution and I often will get people who will be like, Oh, one of our, one of your students placed at our department last year. And I'll look them up and I'm like, I have no idea who this person is <laughs> because you know, they're in public management and I, I, you yeah. know, I have never really interacted with them. And just to know who's in your department could really have potentially opened up doors for the people too, uh, for, for the non-advisors of, of those students. In, 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 Sorry, and in Cornell, do you get advice, in, like advisor formally from the first year or second year? 
No. No. So the director of graduate studies is your temporary advisor when you enter. Okay. And then during your second year, you should be shopping around, talking to people and starting to choose your committee. Um, okay. But you can still change your committee after that. Okay. Okay. So it, it is a more informal relationship that then, because when you were talking about that meeting and it's like, oh, who's that advisor? That that wasn't like created formally. It was created a little bit more informally. So, um, so the advisor is the person that they've chosen to be their committee chair okay. uh, for later. And then the other, other advisors chime in as well. And another reason that that's really important is one thing we saw in the past is there were sometimes be surprises, right? Like, so suppose um, you guys assume that, you know, you know, all the people in your field. Like, so you think, you know, okay, I know all the health people. And then you go to the meeting to hear about the, the job candidates that year. And all of a sudden there's somebody calling themselves a health economist who's never taken any of your classes and has, has none of you guys on, on their committee. And that's not a good feeling right. for anybody. Uh, and so these annual meetings also make sure that people, students are talking to the people they should be talking to and not trying to like claim to be something they don't have training in. That's great. So I have another sort of related question. When you were talking about making sure that you have a right fit with the graduate student, um, I feel like that buttresses well with advice I've heard before, which is don't write a letter of recommendation for a student unless it's going to be a great letter of recommendation. And that like this sort of trying to pre-match on fit better ensures that you're going to be able to actually, like if I were to try to be an advisor for a theorist, I'm not really in a position where I could like evaluate their paper, whether or not mm-hmm. it's going to like be a top five worthy paper or something like that. Um, so I don't really know where to get training and how to write a good letter of recommendation, right? Like Mm. now that other than reading previous letters of recommendation that people have submitted for sort of job applicants. Um, so something, something I think matters a lot is, so just remembering that, um, this is all, it's all a two-sided match, right? So just like there's no person who's the best husband or wife for everybody in the world, there's no one job that's perfect for everybody in the world. And so the letter ideally describes who the person is and what kind of jobs are a great match. And, you know, making that clear in the letter and, and so making sure you know from the student's perspective who they, what they want to be and where they want to match and then making that clear in the letter and then making some comparisons like, you know, this yeah. student is as good as our other students who have placed at XYZ. And in my experience among my advisees, they're as good as one, two, three. And I think that their job market paper is good enough to place in journals like, this, this, that, and the other. Um, And so I think like those kind of really specific, that specific information about that person and their match is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think like sometimes universities talking about like having rankings of students for the market, but I don't think that makes any sense. Like, it's not like there's an ordinal ranking of students that translates to an ordinal ranking of jobs. Um, Right. Cause you're you're just talking about the matching thing, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, right. It would just, right. And so I think that's really important for advisors too, is to like reassure your advisees, like this is about your life. It's not about my hopes for you. And so, because mm. grad students are sometimes afraid. They say like, I don't want to go into academia, but I'm afraid to tell my advisor because yeah. I think they'd stop investing in me and they'd be annoyed with me and they wouldn't write a good letter. Mm-hmm. But by reassuring people, they can then open up and tell you like, I think I want to go into the government or private sector or policy. And mm-hmm. then you can really tailor that letter so it's specific to what they want to do and like lots of sectors out there are worried about being used as a backup plan for people who really want to go to research universities and so seeing in the advisor's letter that this person's first priority is to go to a central bank is to go to industry that really is valuable information for them right because it's credible because it's in the letter and everybody's going to see it 
So, so we had another guest on recently where we talked about um, working in a, a non-academic environment and then transitioning back to an academic environment. And a question we talked about there that I think would be interesting to get your feel on is how often when students express opinions like, oh, I want to work at a central bank or, you know, at a, I don't know, an economic consulting firm, how often do you think that they're correct even when they think mm. that they want that? Mm. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. It definitely varies. Like sometimes you'll see people who, you know, for the past three summers have been interns or RAs at different central banks and they say they want to go to a central bank. I'm very confident they know what they're talking about and they, and they know their preferences. Um, but I think there's tons of people who just don't know all the incredibly varied things you can do with an econ PhD or an econ adjacent PhD. And by that, I mean public policy, health policy. There's all sorts of PhDs that are very close substitutes for econ. And like, there's such demand now in industry and there's such cool jobs available at Twitter, Amazon, eBay, uh, all sorts of great places and great jobs in government. And like my philosophy, and I genuinely think it's true, is that there are great people everywhere, like really Mm -hmm. smart people, really nice people you'd love to work with. And they are at the census, they are at mathematical policy research, they are at uh, small liberal arts colleges. um, Abroad too. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, And so- people really should cast a wide net um, and not narrow themselves prematurely. But to the extent you do know, like I definitely want to go to a teaching institution, that's really helpful for helping make that match. Um, So the faculty obviously does some work while the student is, is being, you know, um, in the process of becoming a democratic candidate, they write the letter, they can put information there is there is there like rules or recommendations on when you grab the phone and and tell that institution hey this person really wants this job or or something like that is that how does that seem yeah so like i ask students to show me the list of places they're applying and Mm -hmm. sort of talk about because that's also helpful too to better to really see like okay we're you know what are you interested in and then sometimes things jump out like oh you know Indiana. Like I know Alex there. I could uh, (laughs) place a call and let him know that this person is a really good match. Um, So yeah, you can reach out. But I think also too, like one thing that is important is credibility. And so I'm going to know Alex (laughs) and I'm going to be his colleague for the next 20 some years. And I'm not going to burn him (laughs) by pushing someone on him. That's not up to the job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you do have multiple responsibilities and it's about promoting your students to the, what you should do is really focus on the places that are the best match and not like, I'm going to try to ram this person down somebody's throat if Mm -hmm. it's not a good match. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something that I struggle with sort of as a new faculty member that's getting easier, but it's still difficult is making some of these comparisons or drawing from experience. So like I've had some undergraduate students before that I'm like, Oh wow, this undergraduate student's really good, but I haven't sent a lot of undergraduate students to, you know, PhD programs and things like that. So I, I, I've yet to see my own judgment <laughs> and expectations sort of pan out one way or the other. Um, so I, I, what I did is I just went and asked senior people when I, mm-hmm. when I was in the weird situation. Do you think that's a, an okay thing to do or will that lead to too much like homogeneity? But too much. Uh, uh, will that make letters to? No, say the word, Alex. Say the word. No, I'm out. It's like when effect and effect, I just switched to impact. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think it's always good to talk with other people and hear their thoughts on these kind of problems. I mean, I think this is kind of one fun thing about our profession is, 
right? It's just fun. It's fun right now chatting with you guys about these these issues we've all struggled with. So definitely talk to your colleagues, ask them for help, ask them for advice. Um, but there too, that's another good example of, you know, I think it's imp- speaking of now, if you don't mind, if I go on this tangent of like undergraduates and PhD programs, it's really yeah. important to reach out to a diverse set of undergrads who might not be thinking about PhD programs or who might not know what they yeah, are. Absolutely. And encourage first-generation students, underrepresented minorities, women, and encourage them to think about this as an option mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to explain what it is. Um, and this is, I've mentioned before, like econ-adjacent PhDs. I think that is a really good option for a lot of people because there's sort of an arms race now to apply to econ PhD programs. Oh, gosh. Where people know. are doing these pre-docs, for a Which couple of years. are just RAs, right? Is there a mm-hmm. difference between RAs? Yeah, RAs, right. But I think the implication too is that you're probably taking classes at night, like taking oh. some math at night or econometrics or grad micro. That's um, a lot of work. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I wanted to um, ask this question in, in an editor. Maybe, maybe you do have an answer. Maybe you have it. What are, what are some common things that in your years of experience you've seen some faculty do that you recommend not doing? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's hard. I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I can, on one hand, I kind of don't want to dwell on the negative. And I think, sure. Um, so I'll just like talk about, like I think, you know, 25 years ago, well, certainly in Chicago. So that's where I did my PhD. <laughs> there was just a belief that like, well, markets work. Mm. If you're good, you'll get a good job. So let's see how you do. And there was really uh, a benign neglect (laughs) when it came to like prepping people for the job market. And so I think that there's been a huge improvement in that regard of like Mm -hmm. advisors realizing that these are just, it's not just prepping for the job market. These are like skills you're going to use throughout your whole career of Mm -hmm. presenting well, writing well, um, thinking on your feet. Um, So yeah, I would encourage people to really invest in your graduate students from the beginning. And I mean, another thing that we started here that I think is really nice is a pro seminar. And so it's a, it's a seminar, but it's all about the profession. It's, I mean, you guys have created this podcast that's a pro yeah. seminar. Mm-hmm. And, but one thing that everybody can do in addition to listening to this podcast is like, you can have your former alumni, your alumni from your program. That's such a good idea. Students. Yeah. And the alumni are honored. Yes. <laughs> and the current students love to hear, like these are very relatable people, the alumni. And they can ask them, like, what do I need to do to succeed? Like, what kind of problems did you run into? Because they've already got something in common. And yeah. I think, too, like, you can go to a And there's that rapport, too, probably, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And some could be in industry, and some could be in government, and some in academia. Um, and I think it really, I think building a, not just a cohort experience, but a program culture mm-hmm. is really important. It's really important for the current students to see like, oh, like other people who worked hard did really well. Mm-hmm. And when that's like a widespread, wi- widely appreciated within the PhD program, like it just takes on a culture right. of its own. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. Of, of uh, I think Vanderbilt, we did, so it actually was organized by the graduate, the Econ Grad Student Council, whatever. And we brought an alumni and, and it was like, we didn't know it was that, but I think it, it was an approach to that. And now, I mean, I think I organized it one year and it was super helpful to me. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if they can continue to do it, but like even having institutionalized is probably even better, right? Because there's, there's no... Um, so some, something the Economic History Association does every year is they have um, at the annual conference, uh, two people that just got jobs sort of give a talk and uh, about like sort of their experience. And in some sense, it's like what, John's guide is, but in a PDF, like sort of presentation form, but 
what it is, is every year, I mean, as far as I know, is it sort of passed down to sort of the next two people that do it. And uh, Taylor Jaworski did that uh, for the EHA uh, the year I was on the market. But then since he was a PhD student one year above me, he did at Arizona as well. Mm -hmm. So I then did that the next year at Arizona, not at the EHA. And I'll post a link to that sort of set of PDF slides. I mean, granted, they're from 2015, but they're they're sort of broadly useful. There's some personal information in there that I'll try I'll try to strip out. So it might sort of be missing, but um, sharing that sort of uh, your own idiosyncratic experience is useful. But learning from lots of people's idiosyncratic experiences, yeah. I think, is more useful. And I view this document as sort of an agglomeration of many yeah. of those experiences. And I think sometimes faculty forget that there are some students who may not even know how the job market process goes because like for us, it's like, of course everyone knows, but there's a lot of people who like actually have legit questions about just the start of the process. And some institutions have it institutionalized where it's like, you're going to learn about the process and and some don't. And so that's another, I think, thing to keep in mind that like your student may walk into you not really understanding the process very well. And that's, that's something to be Absolutely. Yeah. One, one other thing that, we found worked well is uh, so for our local health healthy con seminar when we could meet in person we did um, speed mentoring and so like once a semester once a year uh, you just literally every five minutes a bell goes off and a student moves to another faculty member and just gets to like know them and the student is supposed to say like here's what I'm interested in and even as a first year you can just say I don't have I don't have any questions yet like uh, research questions yet but I know I'm interested in health or environment or I like that a lot and yeah. just the faculty get to meet you know, nine or 10 people in an hour and the, and the, and the grad students get to, you know, meet as many faculty. And I think that's just really good for keeping up with how people are doing. Um, it, it breaks the ice. So next time you see that faculty member, you can chat with them because you've already, mm -hmm. you know, had words with them before. So mm -hmm. that's where it And just sort of a shout out to Ashikan. So Ashikan has yeah. been doing this and I think maybe APAM as well, but certainly Ashikan has been doing this uh, at an even broader level at the conferences. They've been doing it for new assistant professors or sort of more established researchers. And I did that and I found it really useful, um, not just to practice my spiel, but to see what sort of random feedback I get from really smart people that are volunteering their time. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of to shift things a little bit, uh, John, you recently been part of the AA ad hoc committee on the job market. And can you help us understand it a little bit? What's the goal of the committee and what is the committee going to do or suggest? Yeah, so this is um, so this is the third AEA committee on the job market I've been a part of. So the first one is the one that uh, created the signaling mechanism and the scramble, and then the second set up the Joe Network Electronic Clearinghouse, and then this one, um, it's really created. It's like the Vatican Council and everything. <laughs> yeah. every, Vatican every two. Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this time the focus is really so it's really like the COVID shock. Yeah. led to this realization of like, wait, why don't we have better data on the market for ourselves? Because mm -hmm. instantly, as soon as the COVID shutdown happened, everybody wondered what's going to happen to the number of jobs. Mm -hmm. But the weird thing is like, we weren't, okay, so we knew the number of jobs advertised in Joe, but we didn't have a number of people on the market or how many applications they filed or how many interviews they got. And so that is part of why the committee was formed is to systematically collect that data and hopefully collect it every year you know, on an ongoing basis and share it with people. Like, here's how many people were on the market. Uh, here's how many applications they filed, how many interviews they got, how many flyouts, mm -hmm. how many offers. But then also given this year, we're also trying to keep track of what's happening on the demand side and mm. like what's happening to the number of advertisements and listings in Joe. Sorry, they're not advertisements, they're listing. The number, the number of listings in Joe and the number of jobs on Joe. Right, right. And um, 
so, so right now the the committee's main goal is to like data collection or 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 is it going to do like you know provide some suggestions or something like that so we did we did a webinar in two parts like there's a pre-recorded webinar that provides basic information about the market to everybody and then there was okay. an interactive live part that's recorded and available now which was q a and we're also releasing data on joe comparing it to previous years and talking about the decline in the number of listings so far mm -hmm. um, and then we're in the process of coding up a survey for last year's job candidates and we will be surveying this year's job candidates as they progress through gotcha. the stages of the market. So gotcha. that way we're going to be able to make comparisons of this year relative to last year. Gotcha. And then hopefully it stays um, in place. And then there's just on an ongoing basis, this right. information released about the mm -hmm. market. So that sounds like an awesome sort of future service to have all this data. Um, but I think a lot of people who are on the market this year are super concerned about the low number of postings. Sure. To, to your extent, do you, do you think, do you get the feeling that universities are waiting out to see what the financial impact is going to be and there might be a lot more in October or is it, is it just like who knows what's going on yeah. so what we can do is we compare the, we can compare like the number of listings to date this year to the last few years and so you know it's down by you know a little over a third year to date but it's down by half in some of the more recent months but the summer months are the lightest months there's the fewest mm -hmm. ads and mm -hmm. so it's really like September through November is when we're really going to know especially mm -hmm. October, that's the biggest month. Like this one will really know what COVID has meant for right. the job market. But it seems like preliminarily that like U.S. universities might be the hardest hit, that the U.S. private sector less so, and maybe, you know, institutions in Europe less so. Mm -hmm. um, so um, let's assume, let's be dismal for a second and, <laughs> and assume that things are going to look so rosy. What, what are things that you're seeing that some departments are doing in order to mitigate that? And, and I'll start with, I think what I've seen or what I heard is that some departments may not accept first-year students with the idea that they'll keep that funding for people who are, saying a sixth or a seventh year. Is there other things that you're seeing from different departments? Yeah, I agree. I've heard the same thing, that some departments are deciding not to admit a, a new cohort and instead trying mm -hmm. to give an extra year of support to the current people. Um, I mean, I think there's at least the possibility that universities that can't hire new faculty for budgetary reasons could turn to existing grad students and hire them to teach some of those same mm -hmm. the courses that the new faculty would have taught. And it could be sort of a win-win where the faculty are getting, sorry, the university is getting the courses taught and the grad students are getting support for an additional year. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's just an appreciation of the need to, um, I think this year, maybe more than in the past, there will be an appreciation of how this is a two-sided match mm -hmm. um, and really think about like, okay, what is it you really want? Like, what is success on your terms and how can we help you achieve it? Um, and figuring out like, you know, making sure the people who are going to the private sector are well positioned to succeed there and yeah. so mm -hmm. on. That makes sense. Great. Um, I have just have one question that remains from our early conversations. And sorry if this is a big shift. One thing that you you talked about was uh, when we talked about the obvious things to do for for faculty and advisor students, and one of those things was to practice writing. When my my guess is that the first year it's not the first year to start out because they're doing a bunch of other coursework. Is it is maybe second or third year the best in, the best time to start? And also, how do you start at for, from your advisor to to the to the student, do you say like, give me an idea or do you say like replicate his idea and, and try to write a paper? Like how, which, which is, what are useful exercises for practice writing, I guess? 
Yes. Yeah, so the way the way I do it. So I teach a a course in health, a course in health economics at the PhD level, and so people tend to take it in their second to third year. I mean, especially if that's a field they want to specialize in. And then everybody who takes the paper for a grade has to write an empirical research paper. And so you know, there's like a lecture in the course just devoted to how do you actually write a paper, and here's the outline. Just slavishly follow this outline. And at the minimum, no one will ever be mad at you that, <laughs> that you don't know how to write a paper, right? They mm-hmm. might think it's unimaginative uh, or plotting, but they won't think you are just, you don't know what order to put things in or, um, you know, there's giant missing gaps in your paper. Uh, and so that seems to work well. And, you know, it's one semester, so expectations have to be reasonable. Um, but that's just, and also everybody creates a research poster that's one i'm setting aside for this year um just because we used to have a physical poster session where the oh, faculty right. would come and give them feedback um so you write a paper and you also give a seminar um, that's great that's awesome and so and also a lot earlier you describe for the whole class here's my research idea and people give you feedback and so it's almost kind of like um like a conference you know, yeah, yeah, it's like, embed- but this is embedded in the class, correct? Mm, mm-hmm. I see, I see. So, if, so, so maybe think about organizing some of your classes like that, or if not, if, if you don't have that opportunity, then then maybe creating those environments in other in other ways in your own department. Yeah, and talking about like creating a culture. So, you know, when you do it long enough, then you can have a slide that you on the introductory uh, part of the course where you say these are the students who took this class, who then published their paper for this class in. Oh, fancy. That is awesome. That is, that's kind of fancy, right? So the, the, so Barton Willage uh, is a former grad student uh, co-author who's at LSU. And so like the paper he started in the class came in second in the IHEA best paper contest. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and he's- Shout out to Barton. He's my co-author too. So hi, Barton. (laughs) Also IU. So there we go. That's right. The trifecta here. Oh, really? (laughs) Barton went to IU. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, awesome. So, John, do you have any additional comments or hanging thoughts before we sort of transition to our our closing? I mean, I guess one hanging thought is that now that I'm a parent, <laughs> there are these kind of parental instincts with respect to teaching and advising mm. in the sense that it's not about you, right? It's about creating independent people who can succeed as they define it. And um, I, I love that. I, so there is just like a really warm glow to seeing students, you know, grow and succeed and be successful. Um, it's a really rewarding thing. And I'd, I guess I would say like the time you put into it is well worth it. So every week we like to give some piece of advice, a book, a quote, a state of command, uh, whatever it is. Um, so John, we are wondering if you have a <clears throat> recommendation or tip of the week you'd like to share with the, tens of people that listen to this podcast. Sure. So, <laughs> so I'm assuming people want something a little uplifting uh, <laughs> times. So what I'll recommend is this Netflix documentary called Love on the Spectrum, which is just this really sweet, uh, wholesome, cheering uh, exploration of people who are on the autism spectrum who are looking for uh, life partners or love mm-hmm. or companionship. And so what makes it so striking is because they have Asperger's or because they have autism, they're kind of incapable of deceit. And so they mm. go on dates and they are just completely honest and completely vulnerable, wow. which is just so sweet. And it just really makes you feel good about human nature. Yeah. Um, I, I highly recommend that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's check that out. I've seen any recommendations, but I haven't had a chance to, to watch it. So but that, that's a really good, good endorsement. Um, All right, Sebastian, what about you? What's your tip? 
So my recommendation of the week today, this week, um, will be um, the following. So there's this idea called environmental design for productivity, which basically says that if your environment is not conductive to being really productive, you get a lot of distractions and and that kind of sucks. And uh, obviously there's things that you cannot control. Like if you have kids, you know, then you need to deal with them. And there's some things that you can. So this is one thing that I think is cheap that I feel like helps me a lot. And I should have done it a lot earlier. So I think like even grad students could, could afford it. So it's getting a monitor arm for your desk. So I used to prop my monitor on books. Yes, Muscalel. And other things, you know, to get to my eye level. is useful. And I was like, I don't need to buy a monitor arm. This is silly. But I mean, it would truly cost $20. And then I finally did it this past year. And it truly makes your desk a lot more useful and it's easier to clean and make things like, you know, once things start cleaner, I feel like I, I, I want to be more productive. So just invest on a $25 monitor arm. Do it. You'll be, you'll be thankful for it. That's my recommendation of the week. So Sebastian, I, I found a, a more useful book than Mass Kalel. My <laughs> wife is a cardiologist and she has this oh one. Oh right my here. gosh. That it is almost heavy. is six That's inches thick. high, right? It's yeah. an enormous book. <laughs> you um, you can also you could also do that. <laughs> um, Alex, what's your recommendation of the week? All right. So I, I've been reading this really neat book uh, recently called uh, How to Take Smart Notes. And I am nerdy. Sebastian and I both love productivity tips and things mm-hmm. like that. And I highly recommend this book if you're at all sort of inclined for those things. It's by, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but uh, Sonke Arhens, uh, and I'll put a link to the book, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Amazon link in the show notes. And basically what he does is he walks through this system and it sounds way more complicated than it is because it has this German name called Zettelkasten. <laughs> <laughs> and it's by this sociologist, uh, Nicholas Lumen. But it basically was a big box of index cards that this person kept notes on everything that they read for mm-hmm. academic purposes through their whole life. But rather than like having them as notes that they never encounter again, it was notes that they were designed to sort of intermix and and encounter later on sort of serendipitously uh, to let uh, research live. And I originally started reading this because I was interested in this Zettelkasten system and reading about it. But actually, you can ignore all of that. And the book is really useful because it's a book about how to read academic papers and how to think about academic writing. And even if you ignore this system that he talks about entirely, it's really insightful in how to start thinking about like when you read another paper, how can you sort of take notes on that paper in a way that's useful for future you, that's useful for your broader research agenda. Um, and I, I found it really useful. And I found that I wanted to stop and take notes on this book, <laughs> which has prevented me from finishing the book yet. That's right. So meta. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, awesome. So John, if people want to find more about the committee and your work, where should they go? Yep. So the AEA has a website for the committee uh, on the job market. And I think the link will be provided in the notes to this episode and a link for the verb seminar should be provided as well. Uh, and feel free Which to is vrbseminar.org if you're just Correct. listening and want to type it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And feel free to email if you have any questions. Happy to help. Awesome. And uh, you also have a, your Twitter account. If Cal- Cali- yeah, that's right. Kali uh, <laughs> underscore John. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the podcast with the people that you think will enjoy it. See you next time. Thank you, John. Thank you.